welcome to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. This is episode 305. The proxy pro- Mouse. Proxy Mouse. Was it Proxy or Mouse? Proxy uh, Mouse. We'll talk about that. All right, uh, this is Tony Bemis. Phil Parada. Jay LaCroix. And Tom Lawrence. All right, so the name of the show. HTTP uh, 305, use Proxy. Right. And, then and the mouse. Were you celebrating the birth of the mouse? Yeah, yeah. in 1972, uh, it was created at Xerox, I believe. Yeah, and yeah. this week, uh, April 27th uh, of 1981 is when it was uh, released with the uh, Xerox desktop. The Ooh. the 8010. So it's the first release of the mouse because it was probably used, you know, a prototype. I've seen the original mouse as like this thing someone made out of wood with wheels on it. It's actually really interesting. Hmm. They didn't call it a mouse. They called it, I don't remember what. There's one of those history things I've watched. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to see it. I've been doing a lot of computer history lately because it's just, well, YouTube's fault. You know, you watch one computer history video, then there's 50 computer history videos, and I see them up till 2 in the morning. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that device was created by Doug Engelbert, and he filed a patent for it in 1967. Wow. wow. The wooden mouse? What is yes. It? Huh. Cool. And now a wooden mouse would be considered a luxury item. <laughs> We'll leave, we'll leave a link to the wooden mouse in the show notes. That, yeah. that would have been an even better show title. <laughs> the wooden Probably mouse. Yeah. Well, we're only two minutes in. Do you want to start over? Sure. No. no. no we keep going. <laughs> this will be the interesting part. <laughs> <laughs> this is the discussion. This is we, we don't know what the show is going to be called two minutes before, and then minutes in, we still might change our mind again, but that's all right. <laughs> the wooden mouse proxy? <laughs> the wooden mouse proxy. Who knows what all the right. show title will be other than the people in post-production? <laughs> that's right. Anyways, it's been a few weeks. Tony, what have you been up to? Yeah, uh, busy with family and new job. Uh, so I'm working. Uh, I, I've i been doing daytime training, and then my nighttime shift is starting up soon. So uh, it's going to be. boot camp fried you yet? Oh, you know, most boot camps I've been in have, are like a week long of eight-hour training, right? And your brain's fried at the end of that. Try that for five weeks straight. Wow. That's intense it training. Was. Yeah, I mean, it takes on, and, and just like regular boot camp, it takes on everything that you know and all the knowledge you've brought up so far and then puts just a ton of technical more on top of it and processes, and then and you have to remember it all. And So you know more about BGP than you ever thought you'd know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, it's actually pretty interesting uh, how that all works. But uh, It's cool that they're training you. A lot of companies just basically uh, throw you in the water, see if you can swim. Yeah. You know? Well, I think that's why we have so many BG problems. Like, yeah. the BGP problems are because they just hired, oh, that, look at that guy. He says he knew it. It's on his resume. Mm-hmm. HR passed him. <laughs> right. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> uh, anyway, so yeah, it's just uh, a lot of fun. And now I have to adjust my sl- sleep schedule this week so I can uh, get on my night shift. Ooh. Is that going to be challenging for you, you think? I think so. Yeah. it's uh, And it's more going to be teaching the kids you know when to do what and mm. so i can get some more than three hours of sleep at a time yeah so, I mean, yeah. that's changing sleep schedule sounds interesting yeah i don't know i've never had to do it <laughs> i've had to do it once but that not like that yeah i i did it before but it was before kids mm. so this will be interesting life's always different after kids yeah <laughs> all right so phil uh just bought a new truck and uh 
it's pretty nice. Um, but as far as the home goes, uh, I've set up a whole bunch of little Raspberry Pis. I found a power over Ethernet hat that I can plug into my switch, so I don't even have to have the miles of different power cords yes. and then waste afterward. Uh, just lying around the house and in boxes and under beds and all of that. Cool. Neat. Um, so um, on this Raspberry Pi, I'm using uh, Prometheus and Grafana to get stats for all of my internal uh, network. Mm. And then I plan to uh, send out a notification on Twitter to Comcast every time my internet drops. Because as a guy who works from home, it is very, very frustrating when Comcast drops. Do you it have the business class oh, yeah. or standard? I have standard. Oh, okay. Yeah, they're but, a pain. Yeah. I guess uh, even if I did have business class, there's one pole down the street, and uh, about weekly, I see a Comcast vehicle out there. And this one, really? I'm like, oh, I guess I'll go walk, walk around my farm. <laughs> I, don't have I live in one of the few places that you actually have a choice between Comcast and another provider, in this case, WOW. So I went with mm -hmm. WOW. Um, but most areas I've been in has been only Comcast. It's been frustrating, especially with their data cap. That drives me crazy, especially working from home with backups and all these other things that makes it very challenging. I've considered getting an LTE USB card and attaching it to my firewall and then configuring a failover WAN solution, um, still determining what the best USB card for that would be for my scenario. You know, there's Peplink and a couple other companies. Uh, they make a seamless failover, which is kind of cool. Um, you put it upstream from your PS Sense, and it assigns an IP address. It takes care of the failover um, and keeps your IP address static because it uses uh, SD-WAN to make that work. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I'll yeah. have to check that out. Yeah. It's, it, it comes with a little bit of fees attached to it because you get an IP address out of their data center because they encapsulate everything on the two different IPs, the Comcast IP and then your 4G IP, and then it just goes back and forth. But you end up with a static, and it just notifies you, hey, Comcast is down, but don't worry, you're still online. And because your IP address stays the same, you don't have to log in, log out. Your sessions don't break. Very cool. So it's a solution that we've had for a couple clients because they need their point-of-sale system working all the time for, you know, credit card swipes, stuff like that. They don't want to disrupt or even have a phone call drop because it's all yeah. VoIP. So. so do you have issues often with it? Uh, it seems to be when important things are happening that Comcast <laughs> decides, no, I'm going to take a break now. Yeah. I had, um, I don't know if this is of any value, but basically um, if you keep on them, uh, I found that eventually they'll get tired of hearing from you and they'll actually fix the problem because <laughs> oh. I had a, I moved into a house, I'll, I'll keep this short, but I moved into a house and the internet would just drop. Like it's like like you're saying, it just drops. And then um, I'm like, okay, Comcast, like, why is this happening? And then they send someone out, oh, we checked your lines and it's fine. Like, okay. Um, and then again, it keeps dropping out, they send a second person. Then I... Long story made short, I end up going all the way to their executive office because, you know, I don't have time for that. So um, I'm dealing with the executive office at that point, and they're sending someone over. And it again, they say the test's fine. Then they send a fifth or sixth guy. I don't know how many we're up to at this point. After I keep complaining, he comes out and he says, you know, your lines are so bad that I'm surprised it even works at all. And not only are your lines bad, your neighbor's lines are even worse, and it's feeding negative um, something in back into your lines. 
and then your entire neighborhood at the uplink over down here has um, issues there too. So in the tech, this is the technician talking. I'm going to probably be in your block for the next two weeks fixing all these problems. Wow. That's awesome. It took that many people, and I don't know why they were able to test the line fine that many people, and it took that many people to find the problem. But once that person got on the, on the job and within a couple of weeks, everything disappeared and was completely stable. But that's what it took. So I'm sure that stay on them. I'm sure they say fine is within like a, a range of like signal strength, and you're at the very bottom. They're like, oh, it still checks fine. <laughs> yeah, but the but. the problem for me was when it was working, it was working very well. But then all of a sudden, it would just drop, and it just mm. would be down for five or ten minutes or something, and then it would eventually come back on its own. I would I didn't have to do anything. It was just eventually the pings would start coming back. Oh yeah, so. That's all I've been doing uh, this past while. You know, actually, going back to what you're talking about, Phil, or what Tom was suggesting, uh, the interesting thing happens when you start tunneling through uh, data centers like that. Is your uh, everything that you that sees you on the internet thinks you're coming from that data center. So if the data center's in, uh, you know, in the middle of Idaho, then it's all uh, all your locality stuff is going to think like Google's thinking your you know uh, restaurants by me is in Idaho at that oh, point. Oh yeah, that's that's an issue. Now I yeah. do like potatoes, so that's it's not so bad. <laughs> yeah, um, Google thinks I'm in RIP addresses because we have a business Comcast. A couple of them show up in Kansas, so I get Kansas really? suggestions. Um, I don't know have why. You had those IPs. Years. Oh, I thought years. that was normal, like only like when you had it for like the first couple of months until the registration records update. You would think, but, but, but it, once while I get something that says I'm in Kansas, and I'm like, I don't know why. Probably that range is from there, and then they just running mm -hmm. out of space yeah. and gave you yeah, what they or, had. Or that service, they own the IP, so it's going to be registered under them. That service you go That's through. That's true. Yeah, they're probably getting it from someone. Yeah. Two clicks of Tom's heels allows him to SSH into most <laughs> servers. <laughs> there we go. Magic. All right. How about you, Jay? All right. So I pretty much survived one of the busiest work. Uh, I, wanted, I would say week, but it's more like 10, 11 days of 14 to 18 hours each day, um, pretty much fixing things that, that I could take the entire podcast to really go into detail as far as like what exactly happened. And considering it's my day job, I probably can't. Um, but basically, long story made short, there's just um, a, a network slash infrastructure issue. And then the security patches needing to be installed on clients all happened at the same time as a perfect storm. Um, so that kept me really busy. But I did manage to actually do some other things because I, now I'm like re well rested and you know I've, I've recovered from it. Um, three or four hours of sleep a night for a long period of time kind of wears you down after a while. But yeah. um, that's assisted assisted men's life. You know, some some days you have. I mean, I guess having this period of time is totally not normal. But having a, a day or two here and there like that is you know goes with the territory. But not like what I've had. In fact, the the most. I've had similar to this was the conficker worm when that happened. <laughs> that was the longest two weeks of my entire life. Mm. But um, so lately, my company sent me a new work laptop, and I have it here. It's the X1 Extreme, um, which is awesome. It's 32 gigs of RAM. It's an i7 with six cores, and it's an NVIDIA. So I'm testing it out. And Phil's smiling at envy. Oh, it's it's <laughs> yeah. a. 
beautiful, sleek-looking um, laptop. I'm, I'm going to have a review on my channel. I was actually recording the review when all this work stuff happened, and it took me away. And I may have to re-record part of it because I've learned some new things about it, and I need some better camera angles of it. The gaming performance is great. It just, I mean, I'm able to play... Um, I played the new Doom uh, on Steam. It works great. It you know on the laptop. It's just um, it's just amazing to have that much power on the machine, to the point where I'm thinking about getting rid of my desktop because that's the only reason why I had it. Um, I know I keep saying that, but now I can actually be down to one machine and have that one machine do everything. And my my company doesn't really have any stipulation on you know it can only be used for work purposes i mean yeah they do but they don't because as long as you're not doing like playing steam games during work hours i and mean hopefully like, they don't listen to this podcast because um, <laughs> they could make new rules but um it's yeah but it, i mean they're flexible because they they understand you know um you know if you play games do it at night basically so it's, it's it's great so i was able to play some games on here and then um i've on my youtube channel learnlinux.tv i've been doing a lot of reviews lately uh, April is kind of like a heavy month with all the new releases. But think about doing a Linux Mint beginner's guide. I think there's probably an, an audience for that. So most likely going to start doing that. I also switched um, all of my servers' operating systems to SSDs. Um, FreeNAS, all my you know Proxmox servers, everything. So Micro Center has really cheap SSDs, like $20. And, um, I mean, yeah, they're not that big. But they're great for the operating system. So you just buy a cheap SSD. They're name brand. It's not like you're buying a generic brand SSD. I mean, they're like the Kingston or I forgot what other brands they have. And you're going to get like 128 gigs or less. But that's fine because the operating system doesn't even need that. And you put your data on spinning media. You have all the terabytes you need. And then you have your operating system on the SSD. So your web consoles like respond really fast. And that's the goal, and it's um, it's successful. I love it. So I think that's a great way to go, especially with the SSD prices going down. And then in addition to that, I finally got around to editing some videos. My son and I are doing a channel, Cross Generation Gaming. I'll have a link in the um, show notes. But we basically play older games from my childhood, and I get his reaction. So uh, basically it's a lot of fun. And we have five episodes that have been queued up that I haven't had a chance to edit. I finished editing all but one, and they're going to be out every Saturday morning for the next four weeks. I already have one. Uh, I believe it was yesterday I published. We played the Sega Genesis version of Ninja Turtles to, to start it all off. And then we have four more coming, uh, ending, and I'll, I'll give this um, detail to the audience, but ending with the Aerosmith game Revolution X, which is probably one of the funniest episodes we've ever done. That's going to be in about four weeks. So uh, we'll play the Aerosmith game. That's going to be a lot of fun. So I'll have a link in the uh, in the show notes, but that's been a lot of fun for us. So uh, a few things I did. Video-wise, I, I made a handful of fun videos, uh, you know, breaking down some hacking stuff. Uh, and I also did a couple of videos on Zero Tier. So oh, Zero yeah. Tier open source SD WAN solution is super impressive. Um, it's, I, you know, I Googled open source SD WAN to try to find something because SD WAN's you know a hot topic with uh, what we mentioned like the peplink and things like that for clients. But how does Zero Tier stack up? Well, it's actually a really really interesting solution. Um, so if you're interested, I do a deep dive. I actually, have two videos on the topic of uh, how to use it and things like that. Um, but it's it's not like VPN. 
Um, but it, without opening, the short answer is you can have extra network adapters on computers that are not at the same location. That computer can be a Raspberry Pi, that computer can be um, whatever you want, and it will automatically tunnel into your other network with no ports open on either network. So your network can be totally locked down, but you have this extra network adapter that has its own private IP range. It's all software defined, so it's just an adapter, and you just connect all the services through that adapter. And when the system's local to the network, it works at fast speeds. When it's not local to the network, like when we're here, Phil could be connected to his home network with it. So take a look at it. It is really slick. It's, it's way easier to VPN. I saw the video. It's life-changing. It, it's amazing. It changes the way you think about stuff, and we're... Uh, uh, deploying this, we have a client we already finished. We've uh, it's a series of grocery stores now uh, that are connected with it. They needed to connect all their database servers, but they didn't want to have to have a VPN with five locations and push rules for all five locations. And they're adding more locations. This solves that problem completely. They don't need anything now; just basic firewalls with no rules in them because uh, everything's locked down. They don't need any internal ports open, and all the database servers can talk to each other seamlessly now, and it's working. It's amazing because if you think about how simple it sounds. The possibilities that it unlocks is yes. where it excels. Because if you think about it, you could have a server that you normally have public access to because that's the only way to do the thing you're doing. But then lock it down so it's not publicly facing, but you can still access it as if it was because you're the only person using it or maybe your company's the only people it's, it's using it. and changes network planning a lot. It That's, does. Um, it, it simplifies it. It's one of those, wow, this was easy. Um, this went from a $10,000 multi-firewall mini rule setup to just load this software. And by the way, it works in Windows too. So and if you're not a Linux person, you're not, this is completely compiled for uh, Windows and FreeBSD. It works zero basically tier? Zero, zero tier. Zero tier. It's it works amazing. exactly the same way that I thought networking worked before I learned networking. And when I had a, a vision in my head, like, I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to learn this. I'm going to learn networking, computer networking. And this is how I think it works based on how I think, you know, logically it should work. And then yeah. I learned networking and it's nothing like that, but this is actually similar to my original I, thought of how that would be. I made diagrams and demos and everything in my video of how UDP hole punching works. And I, I go in depth on it to make sure people are clear on the technology if they want, or you can just not be clear on technology and load it. And it works like magic at that point. <laughs> So either way is a good solution. Um, I also, speaking of the Raspberry Pi at home projects, uh, I now have a Raspberry Pi camera system uh, that watches my sump pump. So I can, yeah, Phil's smiling. Oh, that's very interesting. Yes, I will send you the links to it. It's uh, a super inexpensive project. The camera was like 20 bucks, um, and of course in a Raspberry Pi. And this Raspberry Pi can be do, do more things. But I wanted something to visually see because of my sump pump being located not in a basement, but I have a crawl space. I have a deep crawl space, mm. and I don't like crawling down there to make sure everything's working. And a sump pump did fail, which then causes Tom anxiety. So now I get to see it. And I can just look right now from my computer as we speak if I want to see what my sump pump's doing. You know what you need to do is put a little uh, rubber ducky in there. Yes. And then whenever the rubber ducky moves, <laughs> then that's your motion to pick it up and show you the camera. Yes. So if it goes, if the rubber ducky floats above a certain point, then your camera comes on and says, hey, yep. there's a problem. In brownie points, if you have an action figure of the Danny DeVito um, oh. penguin from oh. the original uh, Batman series, <laughs> actually better. on said rubber ducky. Yeah, we did think about putting a rubber ducky in there. That actually came up. That's, my staff suggested the same thing. We just haven't done it. So I'm worried that it'll cause some problem with the pump. 
I just hate to like be the reason the pump broke is because Tom thought a rubber ducky was cute in a pump. And then suddenly some plumber's like, who thought this was a good idea? I don't know me. <laughs> well, isn't there like a mesh or something over the there is. inlet? It, there is. It just, I, I'm worried actually about it getting stuck in the little, um, the float. Like the duct gets stuck between oh. the float where it comes up. That's actually what my It'll fear be, was. Yeah, stuck on all the time at that point or something. Yeah, or just stuck tie off. Just or off, Which yeah. is even worse. Um, so there's that. So that, that works well, though. You know so, what? You, to get around that... Tie a string to the top of the the well. There you go. That's short, so that whenever yeah, so that it never gets down to the pump. Here. We have problem solved. This this is good. Yeah, <laughs> you are the truest homeowner among all of us. <laughs> How did we not name this the sump pump? So title. <laughs> oh, to make a floating it fun, mouse. How about that? Because it runs in Raspberry Pi and zero tier runs in Raspberry Pi. I can load zero tier on it, create a shared IP, and then publicly share it without opening any ports to my network, and then people can all watch my sump pump for me. I can crowdsource this. Tell me if my sump pump's doing stuff, because I'm busy. Let me know if it's overflowing. <laughs> I'm registering the subreddit right now. Yeah, <laughs> Tom's sump pump. Um, so that was a fun Raspberry Pi. Actually, the Raspberry Pi camera project is really slick. Uh, it's a part of a Raspberry Pi surveillance system. And uh, it allows you to consolidate all the cameras. I plan to buy probably a couple more and build another one, now that I know how this one works really well, uh, and build a couple for uh, using them as cameras. And you can tie them into a camera server, or you can consolidate them on one piece of software to watch all your cameras, and each one's an individual camera system. And when you comparatively speaking, Raspberry Pi, because it'll run on a Pi Zero um, over Wi-Fi, I believe it runs on a Pi Zero too. I have it on a regular one. But when you put these together, you're talking about something that actually costs less than a security camera. Um, because it's under $100, mm-hmm. completely built, including the little, um, like you said, Pi Hat adapter, because I'm using it on PoE, um, and you can mount these as cameras. And there's uh, plenty of 3D prints out there to make little holders for the cameras, uh, so you can watch your outdoors, you can maybe put it to watch, you know, the farm. Are you using the uh, Raspberry Pi branded camera, um, or what are you using for the actual camera? The Raspberry Pi branded one, but they make a couple, it's kind of weird, they, I think they're Raspberry Pi branded cameras. That, With the ribbon cable? Yeah. Okay, I've yeah. used that before. Yeah, uh, and they have a bunch of lens adapters. You order it with wide-angle, telephoto, zoom, hmm. uh, medium angles. They're all like under twenty, under 25 bucks on Amazon. I chose the one because uh, that had the night vision camera. So they have one that's got the IR cut filter missing. Um, so it doesn't IR cut, so it doesn't do good at all in regular light. It looks weird, I should say. The colors are all wrong. Uh, but it's got two little LEDs that came with it. And it went with the LEDs, I think it was $27. With and nice. it's really bright. You can see in my sump pump quite clearly, and it's obviously it's dark. I don't have any lights in there. It's under the house. <laughs> Anyways, that was it's a fun little project. I'll, I'll I'm gonna do a write up on it because I think it's something fun to play with, um, especially if you want to build your own security camera system for a reasonable price. And uh, it has motion alert options, email you options, time lapse options, uh, thresholds. It's got a lot of features, even on an individual basis. So, And it supports backend sending the files wherever you want. Snapshot to your email, save it to a file server, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. So it's a, it's a cool system. Um, I also did a dive, and I'm going to do more videos on this because uh, I think it solves a problem. So should Tom upgrade his computer because editing is slow and painful and I want something faster, you know, because faster is better. Uh, X2 Go. So I did a video on it and I didn't realize how good it worked with published applications. So I loaded a Linux install on my XCPNG virtualization stack and then I used the X2 Go to forward the application, publish it 
over X to go, and now from my low-powered laptop, I can do high-powered editing with the power of my server, and I can start and stop that session. I did some uh, videos, I did editing, and I made a video about this. I didn't edit it using it though, because um, my server is actually not as fast as my desktop, but. I'm getting faster servers. So it's kind of cool because uh, application publishing, instead of just, you know, remote desktop and remoting in where, you know, it's kind of lagging, doesn't work. With the application publishing, all the sound, audio, everything works just beautifully. So uh, no problems when I was doing editing. Like, of course, I'm on the LAN. Uh, I tried it over VPN from home. It works, but this is really laggy. But obviously, I'm trying to port video editing <laughs> over a VPN. So I didn't expect it to work. But uh, the published applications do work for things like uh, LibreOffice and things like that over the VPN. So, but X2Go is way more powerful than I expected. Like I knew, I knew it did great remote desktop. Tony's been using it, I believe, for a while. I've I've used it with uh, the same protocol. It's the NX protocol, but I've used it with uh, No Machine. Okay. Um, X2Go is uh, open source GPL. So um, yeah. I'm thinking uh, for my future needs, I'm going to be moving over to that instead. Um, it's nice because it's in the repositories for Ubuntu, the server and client, so it's just apt-get install. And uh, for those of you running Windows, this is a cool feature. They have an installer for Windows, not for the server side, but for the client side. I guess there's some mm -hmm. hacky way you can make it work in Windows. Uh, anyways, but I you think can... You have to have X running. So if you can get X running on Windows, then I guess you could, but... Yeah, but as a client in Windows, it's, uh, it's really simple. Because yeah. then you can connect to your Linux uh, machines, and all the published applications, they and work, but a little bit... There's Plugging. a yeah. There's a web client also, so you can have a, a website just yes. like a Citrix login yep. thing. It's pretty cool. Yeah, they have a uh, they have a whole Apache module for it, completely written. You just add it. It's written, it's yeah. a couple minutes to set it up and load it as an Apache module. There's I was, really not much to it. I was running this whole thing uh, under uh, No Machine at the time, but this was in 2000, uh, 2005, 2006. It was like a long time ago, and uh, and it was working, and it was pretty cool. I was, I remember remoting into my computer at home over that. I'm like, this is sweet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's yeah. A, it's a really slick system. So yeah, I'm definitely excited about that. Uh, and then a couple hacking interviews I did. Uh, there's a video on our website with hacker Chris Roberts. If the name doesn't sound familiar, he's the guy that uh, he talks about the story of the time he hacked the plane because they said he couldn't hack the plane. So he hacked the plane mm -hmm. and then tweeted about it. And then he <laughs> shut the plane down. And, of course, he got arrested. And then the EFF Foundation had to defend him because uh, he's... So yeah. that's not... He didn't hack the plane. He hacked the, the plane entertainment system, yes. right? And he um, shut down the entertainment system. Like, yeah. you know, the TV that the TV everybody's thing. watching. Yeah. But uh, he also covers, in, in his interview, he talks about the Boeing and the recent incident because he's talked about insecurities before um, in that world of problems and he's like it shouldn't come to the point where uh, people get hurt like we warn these people that there are insecurities mm. and flaws in the way you guys do things so yeah so chris roberts is an interesting person to interview him and another interview with uh kyle hanslevan of huntress labs uh he is an nsa hide and seek champion <laughs> he does advance he wrote for a while offensive security he writes advanced persistent threats when he was a contractor at the nsa which after leaving he started a company that finds advanced persistent threats and when asked how'd you get so good at it he's like well, I wrote them for the NSA, so he's uh, flipping sides. He's always, um, it was a really interesting interview of how they find things, how they find these persistent threats, and how things get on computers. Uh, we use their software, so it was a really fun, technical uh, interview for how they do things. So that's what I've been up to the last couple of weeks, staying busy. Very cool. I found a link for um, 
comparison of remote desktop softwares, and that's where I got a few of my a little bit of my information for X2Go and, oh, okay. and No Machine. So I'll throw that in the show notes. Awesome. So, uh, so we have PenguinCon coming up next oh, yeah. weekend. Next weekend, May third through the fifth. That's right. Uh, so I have a talk. Tom has a talk. Jay has a talk, and then talk, yeah. we have a show. What's your talk on, Tony? My talk is on DDoSes. So it was sweet. You know something was, about it, right? You know way more about it now. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I learned a lot in the last uh, month or so. Um, but it, it, at first, it was uh, inspired because I was interviewing for this job. And I'm like, you know, that's something that's been around for a long time. And there's a lot of uh, mis- misnomers or just little bits of information here and there that people get. And I wanted to kind of put it together and, and kind of give a, a twist on it was what the home user can do to help fight against DDoSes. Um, so I, that's what my talk's going to be about. And that's going to be Saturday morning at 10 a.m. So it'll be kind of an early morning, but I'm going to get off work. Drive straight to PenguinCon, get set up, and do my talk. Uh, we're doing the show. That's Friday night uh, at 5 o'clock, right? Or is that 7 o'clock? It's 5, I believe. 1700, yeah, so 5 o'clock. Uh, so if you wanted to look and see when all of our shows are, or all of our talks and, and everything else going on at PenguinCon, uh, I have a link in the show notes. Uh, it's for the schedule. And it's penguincon2019.sched.com uh, or S-C-H-E-D.com. And uh, I don't know if you guys have ever seen or used Sketch outside of Penguincon, but it was developed by uh, a guy here in the metro Detroit area, if I remember right. Yeah, uh, I used to work with a guy. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it's a great, yeah. great piece of software. Yeah, I love it. It's uh, So it's all about uh, convention scheduling and... And information, and you can go on and make your own kind of schedule. So you can say, "Well, these are the things I'm interested in," and just have those show up, and you know where to go. My talk is at three on Saturday. I am doing a panel on RetroPie. Basically, yeah. going to talk about how to build it, and I'm going to bring some of my gadgets with me to show off and things like that. So last year I did the same, and it was pretty successful. So definitely excited about that. So that'll be mine on Saturday. Yeah, so if you uh, search PenguinCon schedule, uh, or PenguinCon 2019 schedule, then uh, that'll bring it up also. Uh, yep. And, uh, yeah, so it's pretty cool. Uh, and then, Tom, you're doing, is it just one talk this year? Or? Oh, no, I'm doing uh, PF Sense, which they put me on Friday for that, which I'm, like, less than thrilled about because that's when no one's there. Yeah, Friday at 4. Like, yeah, Friday at 4. And I didn't complain about it, but I'm like, okay. Because mm. I, I, one of the first years I did PMCon, I did Friday at 4, and I'm like, oh, look, there was, I remember what the talk was. I've done a few. Uh, there wasn't many there, but my PF Sense talks previously have had a lot of people, and a lot of people interested in open source firewalls. Um, I still got to finish deciding exactly how I want to do that talk. Someone asked if it's going to be advanced, so I'm actually going to put two talks together, depending on the audience. Because uh, only a handful of people show up, and it's the diehards that really want an advanced talk. I'll dive advanced. If not, I'll do my usual getting started with PF Sense and bring them through as much as I can cover in an hour. Uh, the other one is Protecting the Digital You, is a talk I've done a few times uh, for businesses and stuff, but it's all about practical security about you and your digital persona. 
and I separate what the digital you is in the beginning versus your online persona and how you have to look at it differently. Because um, us around the table have no problem with that concept. Right. Um, other people are like, you mean I don't put everything, my teacher, my first pet's name and everything on the internet and then use those same answers for everything I do? <laughs> no, you don't. Right. And I, I try to encourage people to think about it without getting too deeply technical. That's cool. I make and, it fun. And you've given similar talks to uh, to other groups in the area, right? Oh, many times. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's that's. Uh, I've done that for some uh, big events at the Chambers of Commerce and things like that. So, um, yeah, I've been doing a few more. I, I, I get requests. And I try to figure out which ones I want to do, but I'm also speaking at uh, the IoT Connect at the Science Center going on. Um, speaking there. Uh, about some technology and stuff as well. So it's going to be, we're having some interesting things going on in Michigan. So Very cool. Uh, so more on PenguinCon. Um, so it's not just a tech conference, right? No. It's not just Linux and open source. Uh, so I, I know some of our listeners uh, know about it and some may not. So I thought we'd go around and say, what kind of things are we looking forward to? And, and what, uh, is there something that, uh, that you think is really interesting about PenguinCon? And uh, my my big thing is I like how they're uh, real inclusive. That um, you know it's it's a mix of tech and uh, like a Comic Con kind of thing, and people can come and just be themselves and not have to worry about uh, really a lot of judgment or anything like that. So the very first talk that's on Friday is building an open source artificial pancreas, and. That interests me because I'm a lifelong type 1 diabetic. I mean, I have an insulin pump with a continuous glucose monitor, but I've, I've looked at building one of these uh, open APS systems um, for some years now. Mm. And just to say that, hey, I built my pancreas and I carry it around on a little computer in my pocket is <laughs> some, some nerd cred to me. Um, but they've got a craft show, which I like because my wife and I love going uh, to craft shows. Um, I like all of the different uh, tech panels where you just get to see um, sysadmins complaining, old graybeard sysadmins complaining about whatever the heck uh, they want to complain about. Mm -hmm. And um, getting to see uh, all, all sorts of that, it, it's something special to me. You know, Greybeards, uh, there's always been a BSD talk. Yeah. And I don't know if they had it last year or not, but uh, that was always interesting, uh, yeah. listening to them talk about the old days, and now we can do this with BSD. Yeah. Michael <laughs> Lucas is always fun. Uh, you know, he used to write a column called Big Scary Demons. <laughs> it was a column he wrote years ago uh, we we had so much fun hanging out with michael lucas he came and did an interview that's published on there we want to talk about all his books and uh, this table is 10 feet long by four feet wide and it barely was able to hold the number of books that man has published that's how many michael lucas has wrote a lot of books of course some of them were multi-language so there's you know he was he admitted he was embellishing a little because there's like two versions one's in a different language but still he has wrote a lot of books <laughs> he's scheduled for 11 sessions at penguin i'm okay with that's that it. he likes he's talking busy. so yeah he's going to do one on bsd jails that looks really interesting yeah, his new book on BSD jails, he was interviewed by um, Freenas and a couple other people. They retweeted it, um, but he did some interviews recently on the new jail book. Cool. 
think for me, PenguCon is, I mean, the fact that it's inclusive is one of the big things because um, I, I think having the welcoming atmosphere is, is very, very nice to have. But for me, it's about making friends is, is a big thing. Um, that's how I met Tom. That's how I met you. That's how we met. That's how I met everybody. That's how I met Tony. Like all of us know, all of us are here because of Penguin Con. Actually, if you really put it that way, yeah. Um, yeah. Like Tony, it turns out Tony lives down the street, but Mm -hmm. I had no idea. But we had to go all the way to Southfield to find out that Tony lives down the street. (laughs) It's it's really hard in the in the working in in tech or being a a geek or or so. It's kind of hard to meet other people or meet friends because it's like you want to talk to people of the same mindset or have, you know, or into the same hobbies or you have something in common with. And sometimes working in tech, you can kind of feel like you're on an Island, right? I mean, on YouTube, I gauge with my, the people that watch my videos and the comments, but they're all over the world. But this is the convention that we, that I can go locally here and actually meet people face to face. So do some social networking in real life. That's a big thing. And then the other thing I like about it is that I learn so much. I, I bring a laptop at every panel, I take notes, and then I have so many things noted down of the things that I've learned that it could take me days to sort the notes into permanent files and just digest everything that I've learned during the course of the thing. But also, pretty much everything I'm into in one place, it's not just Linux, it's not just just open source. I love science fiction, I love writing, technology obviously, pretty much all of my hobbies and gaming even, all of my hobbies in one convention. I mean, usually you go to separate conventions for any one of those things, mm-hmm. but to have all of those things together, I think is what makes PenguinCon special. Yeah. And, and much the same. I, I think you can actually say anytime you're over 30, it gets harder to make friends because you don't yeah. meet as many people in real life anymore. You know, <laughs> so. you're too busy bussing your kids around from place A to place B. Or yeah, something. that happens a lot. So, um, but it's always been fun. The, the people I've met there, you know, the present company um, and many others, it's just been kind of like a good time to hang out and geek out about stuff because it is so niche focused. Uh, and unlike a Linux conference, which I do enjoy, like we go to Ohio Linux Fest, um, it's more there. There's other people there. There's other mm-hmm. uh, completely like a bunch of science fiction people, which don't necessarily mean they're Linux people, um, but a lot of Linux people like science fiction. So there's an interesting crossover of this, that, and the other. Uh, it's also been interesting to meet a couple of people. They've had some guests of honors I liked. I mean, it includes Bruce Schneier, Corey Doctorow, and um, oh, his name eludes me at the moment. Ready Player One, who wrote that? Uh, he's, hmm. yeah, uh, meeting meeting him was great. He also did the Game Over documentary about the uh, E.T. game and on being... Ernest Klein. Ernest Klein, yes. Hmm. Uh, so in actually interacting and engaging with him, even though he's a writer, uh, he's a geek writer. And if you've read any of his stuff, it's it's outstanding. Not to mention um, the whole documentary about the video game stuff that he did was or participated in was just a lot of fun to watch if you haven't watched it. <laughs> so yeah, that's my thoughts cool. on Penguin Con. It's uh, definitely interesting. If you come find us, I should have a big stack of Let's Encrypt stickers. So come yeah. get some. Yep. He'd be the guy wearing the Let's Encrypt jacket, probably. <laughs> yeah, let us know uh, if you're going to be coming out. Um, <laughs> Jay, Jay's, it's a, it's a blank Jay canvas. has a uh, naked, <laughs> naked laptop. It is not tattooed blank, up with blank stickers. Blank canvas. We need stickers here. Yeah. No. Uh, but, yeah, let us know. Uh, I think I'm going to be in the uh, the Ubuntu release party for a little while. That's Friday night. Um, I'll be there. It's usually right in the bar there. So we just go and hang out and talk about 
tech stuff. We talk about a little bit of Ubuntu, but then usually it ends up being a lot of other stuff. So, so even if you're not a Ubuntu user, come come find us there. Yep, I will most likely be there. I do have a wedding reception. I'm going to slip out to join and then come back. I should be back in time for that. So hope to be there too. All right. Moving on. Well, we got listener feedback now. Yes, we do. All right. Yeah. So listener feedback. Uh, there's a few emails that came through, um, and I know one of them. Jay, you replied to it, right? Yeah. Uh, so I get feedback about the Ansible configuration that I have. Uh, I've been meaning to make that public for a while. I know I still haven't done it yet, and I keep saying that I will. Eventually, I definitely will. And we had someone write in and ask about um, you know, whether or not I have that uploaded anywhere. And you know, unfortunately, my answer is not yet. Um, that was Matt. He basically wrote in and, and asked if I have that uploaded on GitLab or GitHub or anywhere. It is on GitLab right now. It's just a private repository. Honestly, there's nothing in there that I think would really hurt me if it got out. Um, so I think it's actually fine as is, but there's just a few things I probably want to clean up. So I'm going to try to work on that if I get some time to get that uploaded so everybody can then download it. It's very specific to me, so even if you did download it, it obviously probably will do things to your computer that you probably don't want, like create a, a user with the name of Jay, uh, for example, um, <laughs> or anything like, or my keyboard shortcuts, the wallpaper I prefer. I'm a, I'm a big space freak, so I always have to have some kind of NASA wallpaper of some kind. But I think um, people would be able to look at it and get some ideas, like, how would I do this? And then I've probably done it. And then you can get the syntax there and pretty much everything you can want to do from at least a workstation perspective. And uh, so that was Matt that wrote in and asked about that. And then in addition to that, um, we had someone ask about the USB, some kind of USB health check or some kind of tool you can run to gauge the health of a USB drive. And that's an interesting question to me because I feel like that's something that I should know. But I might, and I always consider USB drives disposable, so I, I just toss them, which I know it's a waste of money. They don't support smart status. Yeah, there's no smart status, but I know that there's tools that could scan or maybe go sector by sector or, or hmm. cell by cell, whatever it is. And they, I, they do exist. I remember when I used to listen to um, the Twit Network, they were talking about a tool that they used for that kind of thing. Yeah, but Flash it doesn't. Media, but well, it does uh, the spin right can do flash media no. but it, and it may tell you something on there but it's it was something other than that oh, okay yeah it definitely wasn't hmm. that it was um something else with a weird name it was made for uh camera yeah, photo enthusiasts rec. yes photo rec photo yeah, doesn't too yeah, photo rec really one. good for uh recovery oh, i've used it many times and i suppose you could use it but it wouldn't be something like in the live running system that you would use it for right right well i was just thinking in terms of to gauge the health and you would just, you know, shut down. In this case, it was FreeNAS. And the question was about that because um, it's very common with FreeNAS to use USB flash drives as the operating system, mm -hmm. and then you just use spinning disks for your data. So the idea, I guess, would be shut down your FreeNAS, take the disk out, put it into a different computer, scan it, and then put it back and USBs see. USBs are $8. By, by that's yeah, kind of that's what I how I feel. To. Yeah, I feel like yeah. if you have any reason to doubt the health of your flash drive, it's probably in your best interest to just replace it because with FreeNAS, it's pretty easy to 
you know, you just boot it without that flash drive in, and it complains, and you just put a new one in. And it'll rebuild. And what, what I like about FreeNAS is that, let's just say, for example, you have a 32-gig flash drive, but you find a 64 because it's the same price. You could tell it not to use all the 64 gigs of the flash drive, so that way you don't have an issue where one is bigger than the other. It uses what it needs because it's not able to gracefully have uh, something smaller. So if you have 32 gig and then you find a 16, you can't go down, is my understanding. Correct me if I'm wrong, Tom. So Not easily. Not, not automatically, I should say. Yeah, right. so so it's, it, it kind of allows you to be a little bit um, strategic with that, which it makes it very easy. So I think considering... Flash drives disposable, in my opinion, is probably the best way to go. And I know I think that's... thirty-two gigs are under twenty dollars now. So you right. can buy buy three of them, have a triple mirror. You've, <laughs> I think yeah. you're good. What, what can go wrong there? And then, <laughs> yeah, what's the worst that could happen? Um, worst that could happen. So David wrote in, and he was asking about similar to the Ansible, but wanting to create a Bash script for setting up the machine. And what's interesting is that's how it all started with me. Basically, I started with a Bash script that was just one big script that it started with like an app get install and I, in one big blob, I'd have like a bunch of packages and one app get install command, which would probably be like over 100 packages on one. And my user account, it just goes line by line. These are the things I want done. And I would, I was proud of it because I was a beginner at the time, but it was great because that's how it started. Yeah, yeah, that's generation one automation. Right, and it worked. And then after a while, I learned Puppet for a company. Puppet is a very popular um, configuration management system to basically have all your machines do, you know, your bidding, so to speak. So you have a Puppet Master, and your machines are puppetized, basically under control of That's it. an old horror movie for those you didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> Puppet Master. Puppet Master. Um, and then from there, I, I, I went to Chef, which does pretty much the exact same thing, but with more system resources, or at least at the time, anyway. And then I went from there to Ansible, which is where I am today. Ansible being very lightweight and allows you to basically very low resource usage, you could do this exact same thing. So David is asking... When he's asking about the uh, configuration, he's talking about Linux Mint. So in Linux Mint, it's very customizable. You can add applets to your panel, for example. You can move things around and customize it. And he was asking about, well, how do you automate that? So I, th this whole thing reminded me of what you call the Generation 1 automation. And, and in this case, from my experience with Ansible, I did learn how to set configuration from the command line for your uh, graphical operating system or your user interface, in this case, uh, Cinnamon. So what you do, and Ansible has a way of hooking into this, there's something called G settings, and what it allows you to do is set pretty much anything via the command line. So you can set your wallpaper, you can set your, your theme, your shortcut keys, anything that you can configure in the settings app of a GNOME-based, and Cinnamon with Mint is GNOME-based, you can customize with G settings. And again, Ansible can hook into this, so if you figure out what you want to change, it's very easy to put it there. But if you don't know Ansible, what you do, and what I've done, and I, I uh, gave him the commands, there's a dconf, dconf space dump, which basically allows you to dump the configuration settings. So basically what you do is you do the dconf dump and then I think it's a uh, forward slash, and you just redirect it to a file, and you name it b4.txt, 
and then you make whatever changes you want to make. And then after you make those changes, you run the command again with just change the output file to after.txt, and then run diff against them. And then what you'll find is the exact uh, G settings keys that were modified when you made the change. And then what you can do is use the G settings command and basically go through and make those changes or automate those in a bash script. So that's what I do with Ansible. I do a before.txt and an after.txt, find out what key is modified, and when I find out what it is, I put it in my Ansible config so that it then does it. So that's kind of how I would start. Now, it is kind of time-consuming, but in exchange for saving time later, if you ever need to reload your system, then you can have a script that basically sets everything from your wallpaper, keyboard shortcuts, you name it. The only thing that it doesn't do that I've never been able to figure out is that really annoying GNOME water drop sound that I don't understand why the GNOME developers put this in. Like when you, <laughs> when you, you know, backspace too many times in your terminal, for example, you oh. hear that little water drop. Um, like, yeah. Who wants to hear that? So that's like the first thing I disable, and there is no G settings for that. Absolutely. I, I can't stand that. that uh, Windows, Linux, Mac, that sound has to go. It benefits Please. absolutely not one single person. Um, yeah, unless I mean, maybe you are, you know impaired in some way to where you can't see the cursor properly to know you're at the beginning. I'm just kind of making up things here. I don't know. I'm sure it benefits somebody when somewhere. you drink and bash me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're, yeah, fuzzy vision, you can't see it. Um, I don't know. Maybe there's a reason for this, but I'm at the point where this needs to be a bug report. <laughs> Rant aside, that's the first thing I disable. And I have not found a G settings module to do it because if you do a before and after and you diff the files after you disable that, there's nothing there. So I think it's on a per-terminal emulator basis. Yeah, because I turn off the bell in the terminal. Yeah. That's, what it, that's what. In my case, it's actually in GNOME settings. You go mm. in sound, and you um, there's like a place you can go for sound effects, and in one shot you can disable all the system sound effects because well, I don't need any of them. Isn't that something you probably do in your bash? Uh, bash RC because you can, but but that would then um, if you did it there, then it would affect all terminal settings uh, for everything you connect to instead of because hmm. I'm sure the gnome is just listening for what the terminal is putting out. To There's tell a it setting to do. in gnome terminal to turn it off, and I know that in gnome settings you can turn it, turn it off yeah. there too. There is you can edit your input RC in your home directory, and you can set bell style to none. Which because also means that my Ansible will now officially disable the sound effect um, probably by this time tomorrow. Hey. Appreciate it. Good job, team. We got it. <laughs> <laughs> so I I went kind of the uh, less time. Like, I didn't have a whole lot of time to dedicate to something similar. So what I did is I put all my config files that I cared about. Like, I didn't care about the GNOME stuff because I don't do that much tweaking on my desktop. But it was it was more the things like in shell that I wanted to uh, back up mm. and automate. So I put all my dot files into one spot, yep. and then linked did a sim links to to that for all my so uh, for all that stuff. And then but that and then I set that folder to be synced with my uh, it was Nextcloud. And that but is you actually could, configuration management um, part two. That's the second stage of the configuration management cycle. It starts with one flat script. Then it gravitates towards a Git repository mm -hmm. where you symlink things, and then it gravitates into actual configuration management. Right. There's a nat natural cycle similar to the natural cycle of a desktop Linux user. They start with something like Mint or GNOME or something GNOME-based, 
And then after a while, you know, I don't need as much of a user interface. Then they start looking at window managers, which is actually stage two. And then stage three is a tiling window manager. So it's kind of like a natural evolution. So I, I, that mm -hmm. was for me stage two. I did the exact same thing. Right. Well, what I like about my system is that it's easy to explain to somebody that yep. doesn't have or doesn't want to go out and get their own Git system. They already have like a backup going kind of thing. So it's just like throw it in that folder and then you're done. What was the name of that app that everybody was talking about, and I think they still do, that does that, but basically automates the sim linking for you? And I, th oh, I don't know. think it was, was it Stowe? I want to say it was Stowe. Yes, that mm. sounds familiar. Uh, it's a GNU project. Okay, yeah, I think that's what it is, is basically, if I understand correctly, you, you do that same thing. You have all your configuration files in one directory, and then it automates sim linking that for you, so you don't even have to do that part. Um, basically, let's take care of it. So that's stage two. So continue still. Um, and if, if that's all you need, then that might be the only stage you ever get to, and that's perfectly fine. It's a very valid and uh, useful thing. I, I do admit my method is overkill. And when I do have it publicly available, I will definitely mention it in the show. So you will know about it. So just stay tuned. It'll cool. definitely happen. So that was from David. I'm trying to see if we have any others here. Uh, we do. I've taken on um, a new advertising campaign for the uh, show. When recruiters call me <laughs> and start asking me questions, I start talking about the kernel. And then that gets them interested, if not confused, and then they'll keep asking me questions, and then I'll eventually lead them into, maybe you should listen to the Sunday Morning Linux Review podcast. You can mm -hmm. hear all about this and more. And then uh, we got one person to email us back, uh, one recruiter specifically. So it's, uh, it's a fun pet project um, to keep me occupied for a couple minutes every, every so often. We had another individual... Um, Brian wrote wrote in about having an i5 based machine H61 motherboard taking about 90 seconds just to post. So I responded to this um I haven't heard back yet. So I don't know what the underlying root cause of this was, but my what I've learned a hard lesson when it comes to like hardware is always inspect the physical layer first because you'll save yourself a lot of time. I remember one time I had a couple of times, actually probably even three times, I've had clients bring computers to me with weird issues, and I just could not figure it out. And then I open up the side panel, look in the computer, and I find that the capacitors are bulging or leaking. I'm like, oh, it's a motherboard issue. I probably could have saved myself a few hours if I looked at that first. Now, I'm not saying that that was for sure Brian's problem with the 90 seconds post, but it makes sense to always check your capacitors and... Now I'm a little paranoid. I kind of do that at least once a year, just kind of have a look. And you're not really looking for anything, you know, true, too dramatic. You'll, you'll know it when you see it. If, if it's rounded at the top or anything's leaking, it kind of stands out. And obviously then you have a motherboard issue, and there's all kinds of strange things that will happen on your machine. So I'm not sure if that will fix this issue, but it might just be worth having to look. And how long does it take, like 30 seconds just to get a flashlight and just look around the motherboard? Um, probably worth doing perfect time to vacuum out all the dust too right that's the important part yep blow that the computers be. get all the dust out or just uh have a water cooler but that's then it. even then you still need, you still have fans yeah. but then you'll have a uh 
fan, uh, you'll have like a, um, what do they call that? The uh, overlay over the fan. The, yeah. The mesh. The vent. The mesh, that thing. Yeah. I have filters on my computer. Filters. That's what I was looking yeah. for. Right. So all mine, mm -hmm. my desktop now water-cooled with, uh, you know, with that I could easily clean the fans. But, yeah, inspect the physical layer first. And eventually one day that mindset will pay off and you'll save yourself some time and otherwise hours of troubleshooting. Okay, cool. That's all, I had. That's all I could see, too. Uh, moving on to DistroWatch. Yes. Hot distros this week. Well, so since we recorded last, uh, all the Ubuntu's uh, released. Yep. Right? Mm -hmm. 1904. Yep. Uh, I actually really put a, put out a review, and it's one of my harsher reviews actually um, on my channel because I basically even titled it, you know, something like my Ubuntu 1904 review and why most people shouldn't use it. Um, and it does come across really harsh, but the point I like to make is that LTS is supported for three to five years. So you get your security updates and you can move from one LTS release to the next LTS release directly. You don't have to use the in-between releases. Mm -hmm. My opinion has always been if, you know, use LTS if you have, if, if you have, there's a feature that you just can't live without. There's some benefit. And I don't really see that in 1904. I mean, yeah, you get a speed increase, so GNOME runs faster. I think but, you left a word out when you're talking. Use LTS unless there's a feature you really need. Yeah. And and then that's when you use, like, the, the intermediate exactly, steps. Exactly. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Now, in 1904, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't there far better high DPI scaling support now? No. Um, there is an experimental feature that you can manually enable by the use of the command line. And I don't know if that GNOME enables that and then Ubuntu decides that's not stable enough and they hide it, or if GNOME decided it's not stable enough and they hide it upstream, I don't really know. But I do know in 1904, I think if I remember correctly, Wayland, you do get that, but X, you don't, Xorg, you don't. Um, which is Xorg is the default, but if you go into the command line and you enable it, then you do get fractional scaling, which means you don't have to scale all the way to 200%. You can scale to like 125, 150. And that's in my video. I go over that too. That, that's there. Now that is an improvement, but going back to the speed increase of GNOME 3.32, which is the highlight of the new GNOME, any distro with new GNOME will get this. I argue that any machine that's good enough to run GNOME already runs GNOME comfortably, so it's not going to be a situation where you have an old computer that's now all of a sudden to able to run GNOME where it wouldn't be able to I, before. In my opinion, it's kind of the same because the the speed of GNOME is irrelevant to me. I care yeah. about how fast I can render a video. I care about how fast I can get a task done with a tool that is CPU intensive. Mm -hmm. If my icons opened a little bit faster, it would not... I'm not waiting for them anyways, so if they opened a little bit smoother cool i do appreciate good visuals but i uh 19 comes at the expense of breaking shutter which is one right. of the stupid screenshot tools that i use like every single day shutter i'm using because i grab a screenshot i draw an arrow and i send it as an email paste it in it says click here because right. that's often questions i'm answering yeah that's a that's a that's one too now the big benefit i think of 1904 is kernel 5 because that has support for AMD FreeSync. Mm -hmm. So the problem is Ubuntu 18.04 is also going to get kernel 5. So the very the one thing I would I would say is a good reason to upgrade to 
is completely invalidated because 1804 will get that same kernel. In a month or two, if you wait, they backport the kernels and the new drivers back down to 1804. So the one major benefit of Ubuntu 1904, even LTS users will automatically get when they run their upgrades, so long as they're on the uh, hardware enablement stack already, which is very easy to convert over. So I'm just at the point where I kind of wonder why we need non-LTS releases if they don't add the features. I know the answer is they're building up to the next LTS for the developers. It's extremely important to get to that point, to have stepping stones to get to that point. But the end-user perspective I just don't think that there's a reason to upgrade to 1904. 1804, I mean, this seems like it's perfectly fine to me. Mm -hmm. so. I might upgrade to it anyways and see if I can solve the breaking problem and recompile if I have to shutter on my laptop. So. I think, yeah, I'd be interested to see what you what you do there. I'd be kind of curious. I think I've already looked into this. I don't is remember. there a, a snap of it? Can yeah, you... that's what I was there's about not. to say. There I didn't hide one. But... I didn't look real hard, but I quick search didn't show up. I, Member, it's just kind of a weird or app I, image. Or... It's really weird because it's not that popular of a program, but I, nothing has the power that Shutter has. Everyone mm. said, "Try this, try this." I'm like, Shutter's oh, that yeah. feature rich um, for a screenshot utility, and I use it for actually I use it for all my thumbnails, all my YouTube stuff. It's it's an integrated part of my workflow for replying to customers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Click here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You can so... you can run Shutter out of Docker if you so chose to. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's there's a methodology. Isn't I there some trickery you have to do to make Docker able to utilize the video card, which I would assume yes, is there required is. for? Okay, uh, well, it's magic. It's magic. <laughs> My easier magic is probably going to be that uh, just compile it, just or reach out to a developer. Either I can build it myself; it's not that much code, uh, or reach out to the developer. Can he make an app image for me and just make my life easier? So. Mm -hmm. Now, there's an interesting feature in Pop! OS 1904, which unfortunately, in my opinion, has the same problem. There's just there's new features, just nothing worth upgrading for. But one thing I think is interesting is that you can actually, there's an option to reinstall the distribution, but leave your home directory alone. So if you're in 1904, as long as you have the restore image, which means um, you had to have started with, I think, the previous release. Yep. As long as you have that, if something goes wrong with your distribution and you want to start over but you don't want to lose your config files, you, there is an option to basically write from the distro, wipe and restore itself, leaving home alone. It goes without saying, this is not a backup. Make sure you back up because yeah, if, if something goes wrong, you, know, it, you only have yourself to blame if you didn't back it up. But it at least gives you that option to reload your operating system without actually having to also redo everything in your home directory. So I thought that was interesting, but again, probably not anything worth upgrading for. Um, new version of Deepin, which Deepin is such a pretty distribution, but happens to run in China based on a Chinese development team, Chinese company that develops it, and they had that little incident where they were sending data, which they have never really explained on their website, which is kind of annoying. Um, Someone pointed it out, I think it was the Quids Up YouTube channel pointed out that it contacts China and sends some type of data. They, they, basically what we know is it's some type of metadata about what your browser was doing, the user agent, your screen size, uh, what applications you're using, but it wasn't an opt-in or implicitly noted. They were called out on it. And I mm -hmm. believe mm -hmm. the details of it were first, no, we're not. Oh, yeah, we are, uh, but we'll take it out. And they took it out. But, of course, they added it in one of the versions, took it away in another version, no official statement, so if you update, will it just add back and you don't know it? Do you want to trust that, then? 
Right? Exactly. So the, it is a very, very attractive uh, looking user interface, but um, do you want to send that metadata and have to have that worry in the back of your mind? Yes. Yeah, right. and, and someone tried to equate this um, with other things made in China, like, well, you know, you send stuff to Google, you send stuff to Amazon, and I'm like, well, there's a big difference because I will, I, there's plenty of privacy violations with U.S. companies. Uh, there's human rights violations for people in China who have done things uh, like speaking out about, you know, Tiananmen Square. So I'm not going to get overly political about it, but China has a very different perspective. It's not just collecting data because they want to sell me a new gadget and post ads in my face. They want to jail people who have uh, dissident views. There's a very different uh, reason you may not want to send data to them. Yeah. And if they were to say, "Hey, during install, we're gonna, we'd like to collect this data. Are you okay with that?" That's, and they, and yeah, package user transparency, survey. transparency, right? They're, mm -hmm. they're full transparency. This is what we'd like to do and why we're doing it. It's fine, but for someone to discover it after the fact is not fine. I participate in the Debian package usage survey every time I've installed it. I'd like them to know what packages I use so they can you know, gather data on it, but I'm implicitly asked. Yep. They send the data back to them. I'm fine with this. This is completely, you asked. I could. I have the option to say no. Matter of fact, on a couple of servers, because I want them not contacting the internet, like my private documentation server, I said no on that one, because I don't want to have to worry about any external access. You know, not that I think it's bad. I just like the fact that nothing goes out on the internet over it. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. that's totally so, fair. Uh, there's also a new version of Parrot. Which Parrot is really slick. I'm getting ready to do a review of it. I just loaded this latest version. Um, I have it set up in my VM. Parrot is kind of like Kaylee, but to me has a few more things set up in it. It's got a, a handful more features, like a more complete experience, but it's a pen testing uh, distribution. Lots and lots of tools in there. That's actually sometimes the, the good and bad of the tools is which one do I use? There's 40 of them that do a similar thing. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but it's kind of a it's a novel thing to have because it has you know all the Metasploit framework on there, OpenVAS, uh, so all kinds of different tools. And I've encouraged people many times to run this against your own stack. If you're a DevOps person, going, I think I patched everything. Fire up OpenVAS on Parrot and test. Poke at your own systems. You own them. You have the right to poke at them. And if it finds vulnerabilities that you thought you patched, that could be interesting. And it's uh, enlightening sometimes. So patch and verify. <laughs> Uh, Parrot's good for that. OpenBSD has a 6.5 release. Um, it's got uh, security updates and uh, new tools in it. Yeah, OpenBSD, NomadBSD. NomadBSD, um, I hadn't seen that before. Me neither, it's the first time I noticed that one. One of these days. See, Mary was always the commentary on this. So the, the dead air for a moment is because we look, we look for that empty seat where Mary was because she's the BSD person. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so Nomad BSD is a live system specifically for flash drives uh, based on FreeBSD. Neat. Hmm. Which I guess makes sense seeing as you can take a USB drive anywhere, hence Nomad. Yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. BSD All on right. the go. All right, well, uh, that's all the distro talk I had. Yeah, uh, me too. So moving on to the news. Who wants to start? I have just a couple of things, so mine is pretty quick. It's hard to read the news when you're stuck working for oh, so yeah. many hours. <laughs> but there's a few that I thought I would mention. So Ubuntu 14.04 
the trusty tar release is actually going to be end of life in two days on April 30th. So oh. if you haven't upgraded your 1404 installations, you probably should because you're not going to get security updates after yeah. that. So um, you can go to 1604 and um, then later 1804 or do a fresh install at 1804, whatever your plan is. Should not include staying on a unsupported release. So just want to make sure everybody's aware of that. That it's Ubuntu 18.04 is reaching end of life on April 30th. And the other thing that I found is that um, apparently scientific Linux is ending. Oh. Yeah. And I just found out about it. It didn't doesn't seem like it's gotten a lot of coverage. Didn't the, there? Then I think we talked about she retired. Uh, yeah, uh, Connie C yeah. retired. Um, I think after PenguinCon 2016 mm -hmm. or 2017, mm -hmm. one of those. Yeah. Perhaps others were keeping it going for, but uh, what this is saying is that this is from, from them. They're going to start deploying CentOS 8 instead of uh, actually engineering scientific Linux, um, new version of it. So they're basically going, um, going that direction. So it's Fermilab specifically that is going to deploy CentOS 8. So that's pretty much the end of uh, scientific Linux as I understand it. So, mm. um, you know, that's sad, but I just want to make sure everyone is aware, unfortunately, that is going away apparently. So, huh. yeah. Oh, um, well. But actually that's all I had. Um, just uh, hadn't had much chance to get it caught up yet. So that's all for me. Do you have some stuff, Tony? Um, no, I've just been uh, grabbing notes no from throughout we've gone. Do you want me to run through my list? Or sure. Okay. Um, Gnome Devs Mole Making Dedicated System Info Tool. And I thought this was something a little bit interesting because uh, I've loved some of the deeper, like all the specs, and it's very like I don't have to go to. I know how to go to the command line. I know how to do screen fetch or look through proc and find things. But um, a nice windowed manager to tell me all the specs on a hardware in detail would be nice. And apparently, it's what the gnome folks are working on. Uh, so they're going to have a dedicated option for that, a little bit more than the about page, which is good. Uh, Docker hub security breach. Boy, that's. Uh, I like how they the marketing spin. It's only five percent of users. How much, how much is 5% though? 190,000. Oh, so, yeah. So this is kind of a mess. And then someone pointed right away from a, apparently a GitHub request that they add 2FA to it like a long time ago and it isn't on there still. So they're like, hey, should we revisit this? I don't know the methodology by which the breach, um, but they did shut it down reasonably quick before they got through 190,000 users because, you know, they're probably using some wonderful automation tools and. <laughs> everything else. Uh, and I linked to a guide uh, for checking whether or not if you had repositories, the dates of the breach and ways to check. Someone did a nice write-up to check whether or not you have are affected by it. Obviously, change all your passwords, change credentials, uh, but they give you some details in there. I'm hoping for a good debrief of how they got hacked. That's going to be the interesting. I didn't find any detail in that. Did you, Phil? Or? Um, I haven't found one yet, uh, but this happened on uh, Thursday night going into Friday. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so ho hopefully that's going to come this week. Someone's probably typing it up now as we speak. Yes. I, I like uh, full disclosure. Own own it. Own what you did wrong so we can all learn from it. Uh, maybe you did something right. Maybe you did something wrong. Maybe you forgot to update something, which I know we'll, we'll get into those details when we talk about the Matrix. Uh, Phil's going to cover that, and we'll 
we'll cover those details and that's a good debrief in that one there. So with Docker Hub, um, even if you host your own Docker repository where you store your containers, um, you might still use uh, Docker Hub to pull uh, dependent uh, upper layer containers or let's say just install Nginx or Apache or whatever application you want. Shutter, for instance, that might all come from Docker Hub. Right. Yeah, because it pulls together all the other packages. So there's definitely concerns. Rebuild everything, nuke and pave, start over. Um, <laughs> I will wait for the details of the breach to find out exactly what they were after and what they were pushing uh, in terms of what changes they're making. So that's the other interesting part is what was their goal? Is, you know, what was the changes they were making? What were they trying to push downstream? A backdoor, an advertising campaign, something, something, something. New net data. Uh, my-netdata.io is actually a really slick tool. I was so happy when the FreeNAS team decided to build it into FreeNAS. It is a monitoring and graphing utility. It's all read-only, so you can. Uh, it's reasonably secure. It's really pretty graphs, and it works on a ton of different options. And uh, NetData is a cloud-native computing foundation uh open source project and the CNCF is under the umbrella of the Linux Foundation oh, which is pretty that. cool. That's mm. cool. Yeah, it's it's great if you want to make an easy way to just drop something on your server to create pretty web-enabled graphs to see what your server is doing and then you can even easily customize it the XML file that builds it you can customize and add your own applications for specific monitoring types uh, and it's well documented. I've used it for a while. I've done some videos on it. I really like it. It's one of the simplest things you can load without you know, I know Phil had mentioned uh, you're using Grafana. I like to use Prometheus and Prometheus, Grafana yeah. um, just because I have the most experience with it. However, for uh, the average home user, um, it's a bit more hairy of a setup. Right. It's it's a bigger learning curve versus NetData has a, if you, even if you know the most basic copy and paste command, you can copy and paste the command into Bash and it loads and configures and sets mm -hmm. it up for you. They have a complete automated installer to make it like a couple minutes setup. Be careful anything you copy and paste off the internet and paste into bash terminals with root privileges, but that's a different topic. <laughs> it, yeah. It's if you're DevOps and you're doing that, stop. Stop now. <laughs> if you're if you're a new user wants to want to poke at things and a home user you want to learn, excellent way to learn. Also excellent way to start reverse engineering how bash scripts auto install things. Just make sure what you're installing is proper. And if your bash script that you're curling into your shell destroys your entire environment, that's also a really good way to learn. It's baptism by fire, but you learn your lesson. <laughs> yeah, please don't learn this on production systems. Right. <laughs> um, this was kind of cool over at Linux Gizmos. I check back there once in a while because I like to see what hardware is uh, floating around out there with Linux being shipped on it. And this, this one caught my eye because it was a octa-core i9 and actually somewhat reasonably priced. Um, fanless, basically like industrial mini computer running Linux Mint, of all things. Mm. So it's, uh, you know, these are nice little machines and we're starting to see more of this, but it's basically a compact design, fanless, passively cooled, but still has plenty of power. It has two Ethernet ports on this, so if you wanted to use it as a PFSense firewall, There's it could suit two. that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, more industrial things are being web-enabled, so this is we're seeing more of these industrial designs. We have even clients in this use case where uh, the different CNC machines have web monitoring on them, hence the operating system is irrelevant to what it actually runs, so they can run Linux on it because it just needs to open up a browser uh, to get there and change settings and view CNC stuff that's going on. Um, mm. So the in industrial environments are working in manufacturing here in Detroit. We see lots of oily, wet, 
Kronos computers. Mm, um, yeah. <laughs> it's it's nice having a fanless design because if they have air circulating through them, they will they will die. Uh, they did a deep dive over at Pharonix, uh on the NVIDIA GeForce GTX 1650 Linux Gaming Performance and Benchmarks. Eight pages of in-depth detail because it's getting awesome. Even Linus has mentioned gaming on Linux is getting better. Uh, you know, so the mainstream media is going, yeah, you're sick of those Windows 10 updates that break your game in the middle of it and you have no control over them and then all the other Windows 10 problems, by the way, come over to the Linux world. You know, you know, we I think Jay's mentioned before, like Pop OS makes Steam out of the box work really well. It's got the little with yeah. very little knowledge I can load Pop OS, I can load they have Steam. Their own repository that overrides certain things in Ubuntu's repository, so they add some additional tweaks on top of what you would normally get with Ubuntu. So yeah. they, they make that work even better. And more and more games are having native Linux support, so this is just overall becoming a really good experience. And if they're not native, we have Proton now with Steam getting better and better and better, allowing mm-hmm. games that normally wouldn't work to work just fine. I've had uh, really good luck recently running Lutris, um, which oh, is yeah. a, a wrapper for Wine similar to Play on Linux, but um, more up-to-date install scripts for these various games. Um, and I've been attempting to play a game called Dauntless from uh, Phoenix Labs. I have a friend who works there. And I've, I've gotten past the login menu, and now I've just had a white screen, but it's happening. I can still see the game, at least. Yeah, no, it's it's gaming on Linux is feeding a lot better, and it's I, I think that's the one thing that I hear more than anything else with uh, you know there's a lot of video game people out there and they're going this is my hang up and it, even for myself I don't play a lot of games um, but I do play a few and I play it on a Windows computer because uh, they're it, the, the games I particularly like just don't happen to work in Linux um, they are they're buggy enough in Windows and not because of Windows but because Ubisoft right. thanks but anyway. especially Bethesda made it <laughs> yeah Bethesda and Ubisoft <laughs> yeah. There's some there's some hiccups, but I love the game too much to not play it, so I survive using Windows. <laughs> it's come a very long way in a very short amount of time. Like it's always been something that they've been working on, but the past year has been in, in a huge increase in compatibility. Well, and say even in the past three months, there's been monumental changes. More has happened in three months than has happened th- in three years otherwise. Well, if the developers see the audience going there, and the audience is slowly going there, they, the developers have no particular want for Microsoft, they're just doing what they always do. They're going to program for the most popular platforms. So it's kind of, to them, it's probably pretty simple. Yep. Now, here's your periodic reminder. DRM means you really don't own your eBooks, movies, or other content. Microsoft eBook Store is shutting down. I don't know anyone who would buy from the Microsoft eBook Didn't Store. Didn't know they had such a thing. Yeah. So I don't know that they, I don't know how many books are really sold from this. Um, but this is one of the problems I've had. I'm, this is one of the reasons uh, I'm a huge, huge Cory Doctorow fan. and read all his books, and he talks about DRM in several of them and uh, why he gives his books away for free. You can read all of Cory Doctorow's books and get some perspectives on this, but it's also what uh, reasons I don't use Audible. I don't subscribe to Audible. I won't not take them on the sponsor. I, they are a complete DRM system. You may only unlock your books there. I use... Um, Oh, the name eludes me because I don't. I haven't bought books from them in a little while. There's a few other ones though that give you the book when you download them. I found A Press. I've been going through them, uh, mm-hmm. and it's a lot of technical stuff, te- tech books, and like um, uh, they're more like um, you know school books, uh, well, textbooks kind of things. But yeah, there's a few other ones out there, but anyone who's not you, doesn't have DRM is important because this you know in this controversy came up forever ago when Amazon 
uh, first came out with Kindle, and then they had to remove books from the store, and it deleted when people resync their Kindle books they bought. And Amazon's yeah. answer was, oh, we'll give you a refund. Well, but I want the book. I bought it. I wanted the book. So, and it proves you don't really have ownership. And it's interesting because I think we think about this, but I know my children do not. Uh, they don't have the same concept of owning media in any way because they've grown up without the concept of owning media. So... It's going to be very interesting, you know, when you think about that, because uh, Google is shutting down their Google Music service, um, but it's fuzzy exactly how they're changing it. I'm a subscriber to it, but it also means all those songs are on there, what happens to them. Does that you mean know? that, are you referring to their service where you just pay a monthly fee and you yes. listen to whatever you want? So are they going to still do, like, you buy music files They couldn't them, be or? more vague about what they're going to do. Okay. So that's to be expected from them. Yeah, mm-hmm. Google could, Google's always like, we're going to shut down this thing eventually, um, side note, there is a, a Google, look up the Google graveyard. It is a list of headstones with all the dates of starting and finishing <laughs> for many, all the products they've killed. And it's like three pages of products. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Google's got problems with that. The Linux desktop is in trouble. Linus Torvalds looks to Chromebooks and Android for future of the Linux desktop while Linux Mint developers aren't happy with each other. So, okay, that's complete clickbait headline, and I link to it. But uh, I think there's probably some good talking points here. One of them is if you're coming from the Windows world, you're used to a monoculture, you'd load Windows. It's Windows. You change the wallpaper or you change a different wallpaper, and maybe you have a couple different color schemes you change. When you try to leave and come to Linux world, and I've been faced this with many of my audience, I want to get started in Linux, but there's too many options. And I, I get that, you know, and it, maybe it's not for the masses uh, having too many options. That's why I always tell people just go to Ubuntu, quit getting sidelined. Like if you're a, I've never used Linux before, I think Ubuntu is a pretty solid one. Mm-hmm. Linux Mint's not bad either. Uh, but then again, I even now just digressed again, and now you have two options. And how do you move from Windows if you have 20 options? If you Google which Linux distro do I use, it turns into what sounds like a religious debate between Linux geeks all have a different opinion, and they're dug in and demanding as to why. You can quickly get analysis paralysis. Yeah. I think that's what a lot of people face. Um, I don't know if there's really a solution to it because you can't wreck Linux. The reason all of us at this table like it is because of the options because I don't think any two of us run the same operating system with the same parameters. Uh, It's deeply customized right down to none of us have the same bash prompt even. (laughs) Right. That's why we like Linux because we can and we did. So I get that point. Um, But I think people... They, you know, they just want to open the browser and work, and I think that you can do that with Ubuntu because uh, you're a lot of your end users. They're not using a lot of applications. They're surfing the web, um, you know. And a Chromebook is still a valid option, I think, for a lot of the really general consumers that just want to get on Facebook. Just get a Chromebook. I do suggest that to people because then you don't have to think about anything. It just magically stays up to date, and it's protected from viruses because you can't load anything on it. So <laughs> that helps a lot. But it's a it's an interesting read. It's an interesting discussion they have. Um, but I know there's a big popularity in people searching because anytime I talk about a Linux desktop on my YouTube channel, that just skyrockets views because people are really thinking. It's, it's because people are really thinking about getting more into it. And uh, with this latest round of updates from uh, Microsoft, this new version that's coming out, that finally, allegedly, after how many years of Windows 10, lets you choose a delay point for your updates up to 30 days. So we may not brick your computer for up to 30 days inconveniently, but you have to load this update to get your update because you need updates to update the updater that has the updates. But it still may brick your antivirus program and cause a boot loop, which has already been happening to a bunch of people. So, yeah. Oh, my gosh. And it causes them to reload anyways. And 
anyways, I wonder why people are looking for the Linux desktop. Like, <laughs> is too many options really a problem with a machine where your one option just bricks randomly? <laughs> um, yeah. This is a, a interesting read because I just didn't know there's this many of them. Uh, 15 top 15 open source video conference and team communication solutions for Windows, Linux, Mac, OS X, and phones. Now I'm I've used Rocket Check. Uh, before and I've used Jitsi, and that's where my list would have ended if you asked Tom. I mean, I use um, Signal as well, so but that's not exactly the same thing. These are some really good, interesting uh, tools in here that I just didn't know about. Some are peer to peer, some are collaborative. Uh, I didn't know Apache Open Meetings was a thing. Um, I never heard of it before, and I mean, it's by Apache. So mm. the Open Meetings is a open software and video conferencing tool to provide teams, companies with secure, private, self-hosted video conference solution. Cool. I've heard of Apache. They do good stuff. Uh, so there's a lot of different things in here. So uh, they're open source. They're free. You can start getting there and playing with them. Obviously, I guess you could look at Mattermost, uh, which isn't on this. Oh, well, yeah. Oh, Mattermost is on this. It's number five. Uh, Mattermost is kind of interesting as well because it's, it's both self-hosted but can be federated with other Mattermost servers. Um, I'm still trying to wrap my head completely around it to be able to do a good review of it, but I've used it. I like it. I use it with the Riot client, uh, which I don't know if Riot was mislisted here, but it's still pretty it is. cool. Um, and Riot is built on top of Matrix, I believe? Yeah. Yeah, uh, Matrix is what Riot's built on top of. That's right. Oh, sorry. Yep. No, that's right. You're correct. So uh, On this list, I've used uh, Jammy. It was formerly known as GNU Ring. Um, it allows you to do uh, encrypted um, group calls. Oh. Hmm. But I've had not much luck getting uh, Macs and Windows talking to Linux clients. And then when I when I have, it's it was very buggy. So hopefully next year it'll be better. Uh, this year isn't looking too good from my perspective. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm a, that Apache one sounds interesting too. Yeah, for sure. Because um, most of the things that Apache is, gets behind are pretty good. So, uh, last thing I no, have here, I want the, uh, there's one big blue button is on there, number thirteen. Oh, okay. I actually ran that when the project was first coming out. I ran it in our own server, and it was really cool at the time. Huh. Um, but uh, we've I, used Jitsi. Jitsi just works. Yeah. That one's pretty simple. Yeah. Um, the last part I have is. Proto Central Healthy Pi V3. Now, we we're in the beginning of the show, we talked a little bit about digital pancreases and uh, talk about them at uh, uh, PenguinCon. Uh, this is another there's a whole category of things that I was, you know, went down that rabbit hole. There's a bunch of Raspberry Pi sensor devices for all kinds of things, including your health. Now, this does not replace a doctor, this is not medical advice. Uh, these are not uh, certified uh, medical machines, but. Uh, being able to monitor your heart rate and do things like that is actually kind of uh, interesting. Being able to have Raspberry Pi, they have whole kits they build uh, with the adapters. And, you know, monitoring your heart rate's not rocket science. It's medical science. But dang it, Tom, I'm a systems administrator, not a doctor. Yes. <laughs> I need to see stats on my body. Yeah, we could, oh, you know what, this could be fun. Now we can do correlation data. Phil, Phil's <laughs> heart rate and when CVEs come out. <laughs> 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 well, we, uh, this can actually be kind of fun to be able to do that. So anyways, I, it's really clever. It's got a heart rate monitor and uh, respiration electrodes. Um, they have all the sensor breakdowns, what you need. And this is all pretty straightforward stuff uh, to hook up. It's not, it does not take a lot of soldering or programming. It's a bunch of kits on here. And 
conceptually, this is really cool. Uh, being able to monitor your health in, in different ways, uh, more, you know, technically the scale is a basic health monitoring device. You keep want the number to be a little bit lower. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we so exercise more, but uh, health and IT uh, don't always go there. And we always have to find ways to get ourselves away from the desk and away from the keyboard a few times a day to exercise. You know, I think it's really cool and, and more power to them, but the issue I see with it is that it's more the traditional, like, monitoring connections to you. So you have, like, little pads you have to stick yeah. to you where uh, so many of these health, like, watches and stuff have uh, have yes. it all built into there. I wonder if there's a way to link, you know, whatever's on your watch to this. Yes. I that bet there be cool is because uh, there's Bluetooth on the Raspberry Pi. So yeah. it's a matter of making the Bluetooth sensor that you wear, and then it downloads the data. It's uh, it's all iterative. So this is the basic one here, and then mm-hmm. we're gonna the next version has Bluetooth on it. So <laughs> it's the concept of getting into it. And there's if you if you start looking for Raspberry Pi health devices, there's a more projects than I was aware of uh, on here. So this is kind of a uh, hopefully to send you down that rabbit hole of Raspberry Pi monitoring of human beings. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> all right, that's what I have for the news. Um, following in the vein of Raspberry Pi projects, uh, I came across Open Sprinkler uh, this weekend. Um, seeing as uh, spring is here and I'm getting the garden set up, um, Open Sprinkler uh, is an extension board for the Raspberry Pi that allows you to uh, access and control sprinkler valves. So you can set up your automated uh, watering, your different zones, times, and you can SSH to it, which if you've never SSH'd to a sprinkler uh, system before, I don't know, something just, it speaks to me. Yeah, if I can SSH into sprinklers. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and that, uh, you said it watches the weather and stuff too, so, um, do you know? I I hope so. I can, we yeah, can so probably if it knows make it do that. If it's if raining. Not, it will. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. Yeah, because sprinklers going on a rainy day is always one of those. This seems, you know, we've automated toasters, but I still still sprinklers going off on a rainy day. It does watch the weather. That is a great feature. Sweet. Yes. See, this is something we should. We have a use case for this. I don't know why your toaster needs to be online, but (laughs) it should be. (laughs) Uh, Something else um, that I came across. So I used to run uh, Pi-hole on my home network and previous work networks just to block Tons and tons of uh, garbage, ad domains, malware domains, that kind of thing. And I found uh, the Blocklist Project. So the Blocklist Project is um, is setting out to create a safer browsing experience by blocking malicious websites. They've got all sorts of different block lists, and they have a cumulative block list with something like 1.5 million uh, domains in it. And I, I configured this on uh, PFSense using PFBlockerNG, so that way I could retire one Raspberry Pi and move it to uh, something else. Um, and that's been working really, really well. Um, I'm waiting for PFBlockerNG to come out with a nice-looking stats page, but within the first uh, 12 hours of having this running, I had blocked uh, hundreds of thousands of um, random DNS requests that my network was attempting to make. Hmm. Um, so I can I can watch Hulu without ads. Granted, in the middle of a show, there will be a 60-second just black window, but that's better than seeing an ad getting blasted at me. And I can play uh, Words with Friends with my wife 
and not have to sit through the ads. Yeah. And she, she appreciates that too. Um, and again, that is a block list project and we have the link in the show notes. And then, uh, We've, we've been mentioning it uh, several times uh, throughout the show, but Matrix.org had a data breach and a great <sighs> remediation. The best remediation. So according to Matrix.org, an attacker exploited a known vulnerability in the Jenkins open source automation um, build server software, which allowed, the, which allowed the attacker to hijack credentials and gain access to the systems. Um, Home servers, source code, packages, identity servers, and modular.im servers were not impacted, but this build software is still the supply chain for uh, matrix.org. So the intruder had access to production databases, um, potentially giving them access to unencrypted message data, password hashes, and access tokens. Um, matrix.org sent out uh, an email and a notification telling everyone to reset their passwords. Um, so they did that. Uh, they, they did send that email. And then they stated that uh, we've, we've reconfigured our infrastructure and then more hijinks ensued. Yes. And this is where things go a little off the rails because this person had total control of their network. So um, the good news is this was not exactly a nefarious hacker it was a fun hacker who took their GitHub over and said, since you were going to write a remediation, I said, I'll save you the trouble and write it for you. <laughs> and Seeing so, I have <laughs> intimate knowledge of your systems. <laughs> oh, man. And I'll just read a couple. I'll leave a link in there because it's all been removed from GitHub, but I, I have a link I'll leave in the show notes where you can read this. Um, and the way the person writes. So I'll read, I'll read one of the quotes here. I noticed your blog post. You were talking about doing a postmortem and steps you need to take. As someone who's intimately familiar with your entire infrastructure, I thought I'd help you out. There I was, just going about my business, looking for ways I could get better levels of access and explore your network more. When I stumbled across GBTKs that were used signing your Debian packages, it gave me many nefarious ideas. I would recommend that you not keep your signing keys on production hosts and instead do all your signing in a secure environment. <laughs> and I'll, I'll read the next thing they wrote that was absolutely hysterical. Um, this was uh, titled under Pr Principle of Least Privilege. If you just beat that mm -hmm. into your head, if you work in DevOps at all, nobody should have all the permissions, only enough permissions to get their job done. Escalation could have been avoided. Developers only had access to the absolute required and did not have root access to all of the servers. I would like to take a moment to think which developer forwarded their agent to Flywheel. Without you, none of this has been possible. <laughs> so these are remediation write-ups, uh, breakdowns of everything they did wrong and how they could have done it better. Uh, done it better. So it seems like the person was non-nefarious, but just wanted to uh, dance and gloat over the ponage that was them. Um, and this comes down to it was basically one was it Jenkins was the root of it all like one out of date Jenkins server uh, with a three month old CVE not done so nothing no zero days no special but once they had an edge um, and this is one of the security principles is always assume the the intruder has access always start with that assumption don't assume they're not going to get in if you start there your security will be that much better because you assume they're already in the house and. In this case, all it took was one edge case in, and they walked all over it. Signing keys, everything was completely available to them once they got in. So in addition to uh, the GPG key, um, there was also a Cloudflare API key that the hacker found, and they used 
that API key to repoint the DNS for matrix.org to a defacement website yes. making fun of matrix.org. Yeah. Uh. It's just so much shenanigans. <laughs> just, yeah. And, you know, people ask me why I don't have a single federated access for my staff. I'm like, because everything's a silo with different passwords, and it's a little bit better that way in terms of security. I mean, it doesn't scale when you want to be a large company, but there's some, when it comes to your DevOps people, having separate non-federated access and not have AD be the head end of everything makes sense because of things like this. You get one access to it, and I I know companies like that. They've federated 100% of everything, even their firewalls through AD. If you get their AD password, there's nothing you don't have access to. Nothing. There's no other level of privilege. So it's something to think about when you're doing your DevOps design uh, to not do it that way. (laughs) And with that, I think we've reached the end. Very cool. Lots to talk about. Yeah. And we'll be talking in six days for the next episode. Yep. Yeah, let us know if you're coming to PangoCon. We'll keep an eye out for you. And... uh... Uh, we'll have, I think we all have phones where we have our email on us. So, uh, if you need yeah. to get a hold of us, uh, while you're there, just, uh, send an email to the show. Yeah. And at least I'll see it. I have a, uh, I usually, if, uh, if the other guys, if something fails and doesn't get to them, I, I still see it. So yeah. I can be found on the Twitters and all kinds of other ways too. Yeah. And again, that is show at smlr.us. That's right. Thanks. Mm-hmm. So I think that's it. So This was episode uh, 305, Wooden Proxy Mouse. Wooden Proxy Mouse. <laughs> we, see, the title did change from the beginning to the end of the show. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right, so this is Tony Bemis. Phil Parada. Jay LaCroix. And Tom Lawrence. Have a good, uh, what, two weeks, three weeks? Two weeks? I don't know, whenever we decide to record again. <laughs> yeah, whenever we record again. We'll record Friday and we'll publish it right away. So we'll that's see you right. then. Oh, that's right. Hear you then. Bye. Bye. <laughs> You've been listening to the Sunday Morning Linux Review. If you would like more information about this or other shows, go to smlr.us. Feel free to send comments to show at smlr.us. I'm John Miller. If you don't like it, you can bite my 8-bit metal ass. That's bite with a Y.